So what do you think of? When I say God, what do you think of? Uh, when I say Jesus, what comes to your mind? A.W. Tozer said, w- w- what you think of about when God has spoken is the most important thing about you. And so when I say Jesus, some may think this. Some may think it's art history Jesus, that Jesus that kind of levitates above the crowd, and he's kind of like that old Superman. Or, or some of you might think of Hulk Hogan Jesus, that he's just big, strong, burly dude that... Uh, broke the cross. Um, Some of you, you know, those of you with body art might think of uh, biker Jesus. You know, he's got that I love the father tattoo on him. Jesus is a little little bit of a rebel. Or in Hollywood, they have their own version of Jesus. They have Hollywood Jesus, good looking cat that says, I follow Jesus, not the Bible. Uh, Or you could have, if we're we're branching out into uh, world religions and other races, there's the black Jesus that you Google it on, on the internet and he pulls it up. There's the Chinese Jesus that you get that uh, picture of Jesus out there or there's, there's the one that's really in vogue today, uh, world religion Jesus, where basically he's a Hindu Jesus or what's hip hop and happening in America right now is the liberal Jesus. That's right, the liberal Jesus who's out there in the rainbow colors and say, Jesus, uh, this is what Jesus is all about. Or... Some people would argue, no, it's the conservative Jesus that looks like running for the Republican National Party. Um, or my personal favorite, that attaboy Jesus. Jesus is my, he's my homeboy. There are t-shirts that you can buy. Don't get them, please. Or maybe, just maybe, the truest depiction of Jesus that he might look like a Jewish man. Which one of these is, is accurate, and why do, why do people make such images? Is it to control? Is one closer to the original than another? Or is it by manufacturing these images of Jesus that we think best represents him, we spray paint a masterpiece? I mean, here are some masterpieces. I don't know if you can see it real well up there, but that is, in one shot, the Sistine Chapel. And if we were to show you just one section of it, probably the most famous piece of that is that God creating Adam. That is a masterpiece. Some of you have been there and seen this. Or you see Caravaggio's The Calling of Matthew uh, that I taught on the Sermon on the Mount a while back and one of the greatest pieces that's been created on The Calling of Matthew who would write the book of Matthew and include the Sermon on the Mount is Caravaggio's The Calling of Matthew or Rembrandt. The prodigal son, this is probably the most famous of Rembrandt's painting, of the return of the prodigal son. Or he did another one of the deni- Peter's denial. And so these masterpieces, you would, you would, if someone were to say to you, somebody stuck in, snuck into the Sistine Chapel and they spray painted it, you, you would be upset if you've seen that. Or if someone said they took the Mona Lisa or they took the return of the prodigal son and they spray painted it. They desecrated it. And so what would you, you would get upset. And so sometimes when we make images of Jesus, we can spray paint a masterpiece. And does that mean that these pieces of art are wrong? Does that mean are those idols, is art okay? Should we not, should we, our children's book not be filled with pictures? And so today we're going to look at the next three verses in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. If you want to follow along in your Bible, And what we're going to see today, as we saw last week, last week it literally said no murder. We had two words in the Hebrew, four in the English, thou shalt not murder. And we had all these issues come from those two words. All this infanticide, we had genocide, homicide, suicide, etc. Today, what you're going to see is we're going to have all these verses, all of these verses that are basically going to be whittled down to a few principles. <clears throat> and so I don't want you to get lost. We're, we're making our way through Exodus 20 very slowly, but today we're going to basically uh, sweep through the scriptures. And so buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. I mean, there's nothing going on today, right? Nothing of importance in Colorado. So I figure we'll just go verse by verse, word by word. Maybe we're out of here by 115, maybe not. So just hang on. But we're going to come up with all these verses. We're going to come up with two principles. And I'm going to give you your main point up front. So you don't, I don't want you to miss anything. I don't want you to get lost in all these verses and go, what was his main point? Here's the main point. 
When it comes to the second commandment, honestly, I think it is whittled down to this. Follow the biblical Jesus, not the Jesus of your liking, the biblical Jesus by faith. Follow the biblical Jesus by faith. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the text of Scripture. We're going to pull some truths from there. And then we're going to see what is our task. What is our task in all of this? So Exodus 20, verse 4 is our first verse. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And quickly, every time you read this, and if you were to go and be one of those commentary readers, everybody moves so quickly to the carved image. And we've got to discuss the carved image because from that comes the principle. Amen, and we'll get there. But I think one of the phrases in this verse that is often overlooked is you not, shall not make for yourself. For yourself. I couldn't find a commentary that camps and gives me a paragraph on for yourself so easily understood. Well, let me just reiterate it. At the heart, what God is saying is you and I are not in charge of how we represent God. We're not in charge. You shall not carve for yourself. See, we often overlook that. We go, what does the carved image mean? We'll get there. But don't overlook the fact that when you worship God, it is not according to how you want to worship God. So it's not for yourself. Now, says you not, shall not make for yourself a carved image. What is a carved image? Scholars say this is a three-dimensional character. It's never used in the Bible of two-dimensional paintings. But even though it's a three-dimensional character, there's more to it. It was made of wood or stone or precious metal. But what is, what, what's with it is this creation language that follows. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And this is the creation language of any likeness of anything in heaven above, that is the skies we see or the earth beneath, that is the land we walk on or the water underneath the earth. Moses is describing in Hebrew idioms that there's no image in creation that can contain God and that God is not a part of his creation. We're not pantheists. We don't worship elephants or cows or anything like that. God created the world and the world and mankind reflects his image, but God is not his creation. Wayne Grudem says it like this, God's spirituality means that God exists as a being that cannot be made of any matter. He has no parts or dimensions, is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses, and is more excellent than any other kind of of existence. Because God is who he is and he is a spirit. We'll see that towards the end of the sermon. We can't contain him in any picture. So you may be thinking to yourself, well, what does that mean for those pieces of art or my children's um, Bible? Here's a great commentary that's not up there, but just listen. The commandment has nothing to do with art, though graven images of the ancient world were, were indeed works of art. They were typically carved of wood and overlaid with hammered sheets of gold, then clothed with the finest attire. But the prohibition is more concerned with how they are employed. And here the issue is power. This is why, and you can see in the next verse, uh, Exodus 25, 18, you can see in the next verse, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. So God is not anti any representation whatsoever of other things. He's just saying, you can't contain me in any image. But what he's more concerned with is what these images lead to. Images of a deity in the ancient Near East where the deity was present in some special way to the extent that the cult statue became the God. It wasn't a representation of the God. It became the God even though it was not the only manifestation of the God. As a result, spells, incantations, and other magical acts could be performed on the image in order to threaten, bind, or compel the deity. Any attempt on the part of the Israelites to represent God using such images would produce a distorted picture, a distorted picture, hear that, of God and his true nature. So, Images and idols must mean something more than just the figurine or the figure. 
And here's what another commentator said. The nature of idolatry is often misunderstood by modern people. That's you and me. Idolatry was not merely a practice, practice of worshiping by means of statues or pictures as focal points. Rather, and here's the key, it represented an entire elaborate relig- religious system and lifestyle, all of it running counter to what God desired and desires true worship to be. The attractions of idolatry were very powerful and tended to draw the Israelites away from true worship, covenant obedience to Yahweh in, the, in his generation. And so here are the attractions. Number one, idolatry was guaranteed. You make, a, make an idol, you say a spell, and that God was supposed to do what you wanted to do. Thus, idolatry was selfish, and it was easy. Idolatry was convenient, it was normal, and it was logical. All the nations had their own idols. Idolatry was pleasing to the senses, and idolatry was indulgent. It often had a bit of the sensual. And you're saying, you're, we haven't seen that. Oh, but you do. In Exodus 32, 1 through 6, you see the Israelites make an idol and then follow that exact thing. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up! Make us gods, plural. Now, they had just gotten 12 chapters earlier. You shall have no other gods before you. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what had become of him. And so here they are already breaking the first commandment. In the next verse, it gets even worse. So Aaron said to him, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So he says, go grab all this gold, and look what he's going to do in verse 3. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Now, Aaron knows better than to have multiple gods, so this is what he does. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So they, they were trying to be syncretistic. Here's the God who brought him out of Egypt. Now he's represented by a golden calf. Okay, it's just a statue. It gets worse. Look at verse 5. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now he's trying to say, this is our God, and look what happens in verse 6. And they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And here's the key. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If any of you have been reading the Bible before, you know when it means rose up to play. wasn't they're just kicking the ball around. It's an innuendo. And so just as we read earlier, there's the sensuality that's brought with idolatry. So the nation who had just received the Ten Commandments, not 12 chapters later, when Moses was up in the mount, they wondered where he was. And so they, they, they longing to worship something, turned to idols. They turned to idols. And so what does God think of this? He tells you in verse 5 of chapter 10. You should not bow down to them and serve them, just like they did in Exodus 32. Why? For, he gives you the reason. I the Lord, that is Yahweh, the ever-present one, your God, the Elohim, the one that rules the universe, am a jealous God. Now, I have to explain jealous here because you've probably been told, well, don't get jealous of other people. Don't be jealous of them because they have that. That is not the jealousy uh, Moses is talking about here. This is the jealousy with which you should have for your spouse. This is a holy jealousy. There is a jealousy. If, If I see somebody talking to my wife really close in her personal space, I go, if it's a girl, you know, they're just talking. If it's a dude and he's in her personal space, I'm over there going, dude, who, who be you? That's my wife. I am jealous for her, a holy jealousy. That is what's going on here. God is in a relationship with his people and he has a holy jealousy towards us. So don't make these idols and bow down to them. He is a jealous God. And two, he's a just God. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He is a just, he's a jealous God and he's a just God. He will judge sin. He cannot overlook it. And the sin here in, in, in this commandment is making him less 
than who he really is. That's what they did in Exodus. And that sin follows us. There are consequences to disobedience. The nation of Israel would feel the effects, and they're still feeling it to today. This is the greatest apologetic for the scriptures today. Think about this. There was a nation, a nation called, called Israel. Is there a nation called Israel today? Yes. Does that nation say they hold to these 39 books as the Old Testament? They do. Would they say yes? In our history, we didn't follow God, and so we got kicked out of the land for 70 years, and then we were brought back. They would say that. And they're still today longing for their Messiah. And so that, gener- that sin that's, that's just been passed on, of they won't repent and follow Jesus, it follows them and it follows us. You and I, there are certain sins in our culture that have followed us. And they're played out every four years when we try to elect a president. But we have sins from long ago that just follow us. And so God is true to his word. But what's neat about this is his judgment doesn't even compare to his grace. That says to the third and fourth generation, look at verse 6. But God, see the contrast? Do not make idols to serve them or bow down to them because that's what people do. People have to worship something. The human heart has to worship something. People say, well, there's a lot of people that don't go to church on Sunday. I'm not saying that they have to go to church. They're worshiping something. They worship something. A lot of people in the summers worship golf. They, they serve it. They get money to pay for it, and they spend time with it, and they want to practice, and they worship it. They go and they serve that because they believe that excelling at that game would give them some. Now, I use golf because if I say skiing, that's going to hit a little bit too close to home. But what we do is we worship that. Then we go, well, I just worship God on the mountain. And that's not true. People have to worship something. When Moses was gone, they wanted to worship something. And so God said, don't make idols to serve them or bow down to them. Why? Because I'm your God, and I want to be in relationship with you, and I'm jealous for you. Just like a man should be jealous for his wife and his wife jealous for her husband, I'm jealous for you, and I will judge sin, but watch this. But I show this hesed love to thousands. So here's a third or fourth generation. Here the Hebrew says myriads. Yes, I will show judgment. But the, Isaiah 28 says that's a strange thing. But I will show to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So he's not only jealous with a holy jealousy, he's got a holy judgment, and he is gracious beyond compare. That word there, Steadfast love is hesed in the Hebrew. It means favor. It means unusual kindness. The book that captures it the best in the scripture, do some homework, go home and read the book of Ruth. That word is all over the book of Ruth because Ruth showed unusual kindness to Naomi. And Boaz showed unusual kindness to Ruth. And you just see a picture on the, of, in, in a history book, the book of Ruth, of the over-the-top sacrificial love in God's grace. That though he will judge sin and has to, otherwise he is not a holy and just God, but he is merciful. We look back to Genesis uh, 3. They had sinned. They had sinned against God. They had gone against his word. They didn't live by faith. And he said, should I leave them in this garden to let them take of the tree of life and live forever? He says, no, I'll get them out. So in part of the judgment of getting Adam and Eve out of the garden, he was showing mercy, lest they take from the tree and live forever. When Cain killed Abel, he said, I'm going to wander on earth, and when somebody sees me, they'll find me and kill me. He says, no, they won't. I'll take care of you. And so Cain, even in his judgment, was shown mercy. We read last week in Ephesians 1, this lavish grace that is, it overflows to us. This week in Sunday school, we heard about the riches of the inheritance. It's like nothing compares to God's grace to his people. And so the people's relationship with God, and it's implied in his commandment, has always been this. God wants us to follow him by faith, not by figures. And if you you think about it, I read it once this week in another sermon, there is a primacy to the ear 
over the eye in Scripture. How shall a man be saved? By hearing the truth and then believing. That doesn't mean he doesn't want us to use our eyes. He, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So he wants us to know him by what we see. But he wants us to worship him by what we believe and hear. And there's a primacy given not to the eye, but to the ear. And so, the commandment one is, you shall have no other gods before me. This is about the object of our worship. There's only one true God, the who. Then commandment two is that the what. This is how you should worship me. If, if one is the object, two is the manner. And you see this caught, captured in 2 Kings 10. Jehu's been commissioned by God, go and destroy Baal. And here's what he does. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Jehu goes in and literally cleans house. Baal is done. There's nothing left of Baal. I'll just let you read that text on your own. It is a latrine to this day. That's what God thinks of other gods. That's a good thing. That is, that is destroying false gods. That's following the first command. But watch this. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the sin of Nadab. When he came to Israel, when he made Israel to sin, that is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. They kept those golden calves. They said, we're not going to worship any false gods, but we're going to worship the true God exactly how we want to. We're going to do it our way. We're going to set up cows in Bethel and cows in Dan. You know, just, you know, if I'm up valley, I want to go here. If I'm down valley, I want to go here. That's exactly what they were thinking. Now, we could stop here and we can say, okay, that, that's good for Israel, but I'm not really following you about, does the really, the, the entire scriptures talk about this issue of idolatry? David Pallison said this is, Idolatry is the most prevalent sin in the Bible. Legan Duncan said this is, the Bible is an assault on idolatry. Let me just show you some facts. The use of the, of the words images, idol or idolatry, high places, 97 times, 152 times, 106 times. This is all over the Old Testament. In the, in the historical books, you get a picture here. You get this carved, and, and the words are used are carved of metal, or they're carved and detestable. In the Psalms, or in the poetical books, you see the power. We're going to see the power of idols. And then in the prophets, you're going to see the problem. Here's the power. In Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes that do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses that do not smell, they have hands that do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. But here's the key phrase, those who make them become like them. Those who make idols become like them. And my friends, I believe that we have made images of God, if not materially, mentally in our head, and that is how we live our Christian life. And God has something to say about that in Isaiah 40. To whom will you liken God? And what likeness compare with him? An idol, he says in 19, with an exclamation point, an idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. We don't do this materially today, but we do it mentally. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He says, I've given you a picture, and I sit above this thing called creation, who, bring, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. You think they're in control of the world? I'm the one that's ruling over not only creation, but how creation is governed. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither. That's talking about the rulers. When he blows on rulers, they wither. 
and the tempest carries them off like stubble. God is in sovereign control. How in the world can you make an image to try to contain him? And then he says this, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. It's nighttime. David the psalmist is recording this and God says, look, or Isaiah is recording this. And he says, look up and see the stars. He calls them all by name. Have you ever walked out? And we live in a wonderful place to walk out on a clear night and you can see a gazillion stars just sitting out there. They all have names. They have names. Now, I don't know what their name, like Biff, or I don't know what their name is. But he knows them all by name. And by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. So you mean to tell me when a shooting star, when a star falls, that we see that, it's only at God's obedient command? Absolutely. Biff, time to go. He calls them by name. Maybe they're numbered, you know. Number 1,000, 1 million, come here. I want you to shine bright. He calls them all by name. That should blow you away. And here is your first point. To whom will you compare me? God is incomparable. He is incomparable. There's nothing you can compare to him. That's why he's not the art history Jesus who floats. He's not the biker Jesus kind of rebellious and has a tattoo. Nothing can contain him. You say, well, that's all Old Testament. What about the New? No problem. In the, in the New Testament, it took full effect. Paul was commanded the early church not, he said, flee idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. John ends his book, and we'll see that in the end. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Paul understood that idolatry in the Old Testament made its way into the New, which means it's under the age that we're in. And he understood that God was both merciful and just. Do you not presume the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That God's kindness didn't take me out before it was, he was done with me. He was kind. He has absolute rights over my life, but in his kindness, he waited until I repented. That's his mercy. But he's also just, Romans eleven twenty two. Behold then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you kindness. This is almost an exposition of Exodus 25 and 6. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. Paul understood God is merciful and judge, just. And he also understood, just like Isaiah, God is incomprehensible. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable are his ways. We sing that song, indescribable. Do you believe that when you sing it? I hope today, after today's message, you, that song we sing may mean a little bit more to you. For who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Or who has been his counselor? Not one person. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Not one soul. It's not like he's up there, man, Judd's been at EBC for seven years. I'm sure glad I have him there. All the gifts he's given me, it's just great. It's not what he's thinking. He's in sovereign control of the world. And he says, I've given you a mind. I've given you the words to speak. Now bring me glory and I will give you joy. And he says in 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything. From God, through God, and to God. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And what do we do with it? We do, we do with God's word. We do with God what the people in Romans did as well. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were, were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so even then, idolatry was running loose that people wanted to worship God how they wanted to worship and they wanted to they wanted to control him but there's some positives about God's image in the New Testament 
God made us in his image. Amen? Genesis 1:27. We were created in the image of God. In his own in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God in his sovereign wisdom created male and female as he wanted them because he understood this is what it takes to have a human race created in the image of God. In in Genesis 9:6, this is post flood, post fall. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? He gives you the reason. For God made man in his own image. And in Genesis 5.3, that he upholds this image of mankind. When Adam had lived 100 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. So he said, there's this son of his own likeness, Seth. You look at my two boys, there's an image in them after me. And so that's not a bad thing. Here, 1 Corinthians 5.49 captures both this image of God and image of man positively in one verse. Just as we have been born of the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Romans 8.28 says we're being created in the image of Christ. In Colossians 3.10 says this, that we, we are to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So not all pictures in the Bible are wrong. That is a positive. But all too often, we end up camping on the negative images of God. And what do you mean by that? Well, we think idols are anachronistic. We say, oh, that's, that's just something from way back then. That's so Old Testament, Judd. Or we think idols look like this, that this goes on today. Uh, that is a picture of India. That is an idol. That is an, if you look closely, that's an elephant being paraded through the water. With, if you just look closely at all the people following that, that happens today. So it's not just Old Testament that happens today. If that's not good enough, you can go to the market and buy a trinket to take home with you to compartmentalize that and take it into your home. Now let me get a little closer to home. This next scene shows an idol as your main man walks past Mary. So we're not that far removed from idols. And what those pictures and those images show you materially, understand we can fall into idolatry mentally. Kevin DeYoung says, can you see the attraction of idolatry? Let's see, I want a spirituality that gets me a lot cost me a little, is easy to use, easy to do, has ethical and doctrinal boundaries, guarantees me success, makes me feel good, doesn't offend those around me. That'll preach. We want the same things they wanted. We just go after them in different ways. We want a faith that gets us stuff and guarantees success. That's called the prosperity gospel. We want discipleship that is always convenient. That's the virtual church. Well, I don't want to actually go to church and get involved with people, that's, that's too much. I mean, I want to start a church called No People Bible Church. It would be really successful. I don't want to get in a small group and have to actually, you know, rub shoulders with other people. I just want to get kind of like I get my Wendy's burger and fries. There's the food illustration. again. I just go through the drive-thru. I get what I want, and then I move on. I have very little interaction. We want a religion that's ritualistic, nominal Christianity, or spirituality that no, matter, that no matter what encourages sexual expression. We want to follow God in a way that makes sense to others, feels good to us, and is easy to see and understand. From the garden to the Asherah pole to the imperial feast, idolatry was the greatest temptation of God's people in both Testaments. Look around and look inside, and you will see that it still is. And you're saying, how is it still an idol? Well, let me just give you some pictures. Images, here's what images do. Let me back up. The true, let me say it like this. The true God must be worshipped correctly. There's one true God, and we have to worship him correctly. When we make images, whether they're mental images or pictures I've shown you earlier, they limit God, they obscure God, they localize God. They take this incomparable, un, unimaginable God, the being that's out there, and we localize him. When I was in Bolivia, you would go to different neighborhoods. It blew me away. 
Um, but they would have one Mary in one neighborhood and they'd have a different Mary in another neighborhood because we were localizing that false god and making an idol of her. And so images limit, they obscure, they localize, and then we project upon that image what we want and we try to control God. It's often mentioned in statements like this. God to me is like fill in the blank. I like to think of God as mm, you're making mental images of who you want God to be. Here's how it sounds when we're reading the Bible. This is, this is what this text means to me. No, 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 no. The text says what it says, and you adjust your life accordingly. And so how have we done this? How have we made mental images? Let me just give you a few. This is from uh, Stephen Lawson's book, Made in Our Image. There is the celestial Santa Claus. He exists simply to meet our needs and our lives and requires nothing in return except a little good behavior. He really doesn't mind if you're naughty as long as you're most often nice. Right? And you hear that in, in people's dialogue. Well, I haven't killed anybody. I'm 51% good, only 49% bad. I mean, shouldn't God now give me gifts and have me into heaven? We do this. And then, and then we see the grotesque image is we have a Christmas parade. On the end is Santa. He knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So we've got to earn his favor, so you better be good for goodness sake. You see, we've, we've made these awkward godlike characters onto Santa, and we do the same thing for Santa to God, or he becomes our divine co-pilot. This is a subordinate sovereign, able to drive, but only at our discretion. I mean, he's the co-pilot. I'm really driving the car, and Jesus is here unless I get in trouble. And then I sing, like the great country song says, Jesus, take the wheel. I mean, I've got it for now, but when it gets tough, I need you to take the wheel. Or he's a heavenly repairman. I mean, he's just kind of benevolent. He's the Jesus of all trades. He's kind of our on-duty repairman. We don't need him all the time, but when we get in a jam, we've got to call him up. It's like my oven is having some trouble, so I'm going to call my landlord to come take care of it. That's how we treat God. I, I can do life pretty much good on my own, but when I get in trouble, then I'll pray. Or how about the galactic grandfather, that senile sovereign that he, he no longer really cares about sin. I mean, Judd, you talk about sin all the time. God doesn't really care about sin. I mean, why are you so negative? Because if I don't talk about sin, then you don't get the gospel. If we don't talk about sin, you don't get the good news. But no, he's just a grandpa. I mean, he just doles out money, doesn't really need discipline. He saved us to spoil us, not sanctify us. Or the universal utilitarian. He's this, he's over everything, but he's distant, detached, he's dispassionate. But what's amazing about those, or he's the clever magician, right? He's the entertainer who loves to mesmerize people. And those who follow this type of God hold everything out of balance, and unless God's doing some sort of miracle or some sort of incantation, it doesn't, it's not really God. Or in the second uh, set of illustrations you get from uh, J.B. Phillips, your God is too small. He's the resident policeman. But there, I bet you there are people in here today who think God is, he's just a cop. He's out to get me, doesn't really love me. He's only here to catch me sinning. Or the parental hangover. There's people in here today who, whose image of God is not built upon the scripture. It's built upon how their father treated them. And if their father was abusive, they, they, think of, they think of God as just one who wants to control. That he's, he's just mean. All they see is Old Testament. He killed you. Or he's the grand old man, similar to the galactic grandpa. He's, he's meek and mild. He, this is the declawed line of Judah that you see in the American churches today. It's just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He'd ne he, wouldn't, he wouldn't swat a fly. He didn't really turn over the tables. I mean, he, he walked into the temple and he kind of gently said, hey guys, could you help me get the cloth? We're going to fold it up nice and we're going to set it down and then we're just going to tip it over to the temple. <laughs> or there's God in a box that you, you try to control God and if you rub it three times just right, he pops out when you need him. Here's one. 
it kind of hits close to home. He's the managing director. He's still in charge, but it's all about me. I'm the star actor. It's his stage, but he's the director, but I'm the actor. Or there's the God in a hurry. He's like the CEO. He's got to get things done. Has really no time for people. The God of the elite, that's your prosperity gospel. Or the one I love the best, the God of Bethel, similar to the clever magician. It's like Jacob's ladder that I'm going to call this place Bethel because I know God is here because he did something miraculous. But when I'm washing dishes, God's not in that. I love it sometimes when people say, God was really in this situation. As if he weren't in every other situation. I could really see God's hand at work here. But you didn't see his hand at work when you got up and you were a mom and you sang Amazing Grace to your daughter and you changed her diet. You didn't see God's hand at work there. I mean, you see it over here, but no, God's hand's at work in everything all the time. And see, these images we make of God, and then we follow them. And then when somebody gives us some other aspect of God that doesn't fit in our image, we're like, oh, no, no, that can't be my God. That can't be my God. Well, let's just stick to the Scriptures. Here's what we've learned so far in two commandments. In the first commandment, our God is plural. I am. He's the great I am. He's Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does that work? I don't know. I'm not going to try to defend God. I don't think he needs defending. He is personal. He is not a distant deity. He's not dispassionate. He is jealous. He is powerful. He can do mighty things. He is purposeful. He's not random. He's perfect. That's why we don't need any other gods. He's passionate about you. That's what makes him jealous. He's present. He is always with us. Please, 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 please. Never again prayer. Never. It will make my, it will warm my soul when I'm in the same room and you pray. Don't pray, God be with us. As if, as if you have to invite him in. He's always with us. God be with us today. No, God, we recognize you're with us. Open our eyes to see the wonderful thing of who you are. He doesn't need to be invited into our worship service. And he is praiseworthy. And what we learn from this second commandment, just like we sing, he's indescribable, he's uncontainable. He cannot be captured by one single image. He's unlimited. He is jealous for you, beloved. He is jealous for you. He is just. He will always, always, always do what is right. And he is gracious. And that grace is supersedes his justice. James says it like this. Um, it's not up there. It's, it came to me. James says, I believe, at the end of the second chapter. Maybe, yes, in the middle of the second chapter. Somewhere in there. There it is. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And you see that in this command. So what can we learn from this? Here's what I tell you. Learn to discern the idolatrous comments that you make about God. He's not the man upstairs. Uh, he, just use biblical language. And the way you do that is you get to know him throughout the entire scripture. People often ask, well, what should I read? The Bible. Which book? All of them. Because if I just tell you to read one, you're just going to get one aspect. And then you, I mean, there are people that just, just hold on to Philippians like it's just, but there's a lot more than just Philippians. Philippians is great. I love Philippians. I'm memorizing Philippians. But that's just one of 66. Well, I can't really stomach what God did in the Old Testament. You better be able to stomach what God did in the Old Testament because that's who he is. And he never acts random and he never acts unjust. And all of that points to one person, Jesus Christ. Just like Mickey, or who was that? Reed read earlier. He's the exact representation. Colossians 1.15 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
you wanted to, the world needed to see an image? They got to see Jesus. And he, this Jesus that some got to see, we haven't yet. He fulfilled every other picture. Hebrews 9.14 says this, that he talks about the blood and bulls. How much more with the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. That he's saying all those other images, all those other sacrifices point to Jesus. And thus you and I, Hebrews 10, can approach God through him. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. See all that imagery? You don't need images. Just read the Bible. It, it gives your imagination. It will sanctify your imagination. It will give you the imagery. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. Look at this. With full assurance of faith, you and I do not need pictures. Is art bad? No. So let me answer that. Somebody, no. But be careful because works of art, if they're not held up just as good works of art, can become um, idols. What are you and I called to do? Paul tells us, for we walk by faith not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. Does that mean if I had a picture, if I had Caravaggio's painting, I'd put it up in my house just because. But I'm not going to go past it every time and go, oh, there's, there's Jesus. That's what represents Jesus. No, that's a picture trying to help me understand that piece of Scripture. It's not a represent, full representation of who Jesus is. We walk by faith, not by sight. So how do, well, then what do we do? John tells us we are to worship him in spirit and truth. This woman in John 4 was trying to worship God the old way, and she wanted it to be in a specific place, in a certain ritual. In a certain, he said, no, 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 no. But an hour in coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He's saying he cannot be localized, and it has to be according to the truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. That is, he can't be contained in a picture, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And God's given us enough biblical language. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a servant. He's the lion. He's the lamb. So if you're going to go over here and just always talk about the little lamb Jesus, don't forget he is the lion of Judah, and lions have claws. Okay? Lions have claws. I just want to read you from a book on Christ, seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. I think it's one of the best books on Christology out there, and here's why. It just gives you all the text on Jesus. It gives you everything about Jesus. And in one of them, it says this, especially offensive to the modern Western sentiment is the tough, blunt, fierce form of Jesus' love. Love. People with thin skin would have often felt hurt by Jesus' piercing tongue. This is the Jesus of the Bible. People who identify love only with soft and tender words and ways would have repeatedly been outraged by the stinging, almost violent language of the Lord. Not this was the only way he spoke. We have seen the sweetness of his mercies and how patient and kind and forgiving he is. But what often happens is if we don't read the entire Bible and we don't get all the pictures, we see Jesus as the lamb. We don't see Jesus as the lion. Or we see him as, as the servant. We never see him as the king. So Jesus is my servant. And we take that verse out of context. I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. But well, he's my servant. No, he's your king. And he's your Lord. And he tells you what to do. He's in, he, he is in charge. He, he's a shepherd, and he's a military leader. And so we get enough from the Scriptures, from the Scriptures. Because what happened, and, and this is what John said, John, towards the end of the New Testament, the last thing he said, the last thing, Paul always ends with, grace to you. What does John end his book with? John ends 1 John with, little children, keep yourself from idols. It's so important. Don't make God into another image. So what do you do if you have? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, 
They themselves report to us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols. So if you've made God into an image in your own mind, your God is either some distant deity, he's just mean, or your God is kind of that psychologized Jesus that whatever feels good, that's what's right. Turn from them and turn to God to wait for his son. And then look, as you're running the race, look to him. Hebrews 12.2 says this. Therefore, since we're surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, you get chapter 11 that just walks you through all of biblical history. That's probably one of my favorite chapters in Scripture because it captures for me in one chapter. Here's the God who creates. And those who worship him must know that he created and he rewards those who seek him. And here's how Noah went. Here's Abraham. Here's Isaac. Here's Moses. Here's Rahab. Here's Gideon, Barak, Samson, David. It just tells me a picture. I don't need an image. I just need to see those great cloud of witnesses and then lay aside every weight and the sin which so closely entangles and let us run with endurance the race set before us. How? How do you and I run the race? Fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus. When I speak of seeing Jesus, I don't mean seeing with eyes of the head. I mean with the eyes of your heart. We covered that today. May the eyes of your heart be enlightened. He's not talking about seeing with physical eyes, but seeing with spiritual eyes. The Bible says that we may see Jesus in another sense. It speaks of the eyes of our heart. It speaks of seeing in the light of the gospel the face of Christ. One kind of seeing with physical eyes, the other with spiritual eyes. When we see with our spiritual eyes, we see the truth and beauty and the value of Jesus Christ for what they really are. Thus, a blind person today may see Jesus more clearly than many who have eyes. Everyone who reads the story of Jesus and see the portraits painted by the words of those who knew him, but everyone who sees truth and beauty and infinite value, some see only a myth. They, look, they read this and they go, really? That really happened? Come on. It is as though some see a fence they really do not see. It's as if though a child took Michelangelo and they say, you know, I prefer a comic strip. And you're thinking, wow, that's a whole lot. How do I get my head around all this? Here's, in my study of this, here's where I think we have to land here. Here's my encouragement to you. Here's an application to this. How do you not make carved images? Well, we're not going to do it physically, but we could do it spiritually. How do you and I keep centered? And you're, you're not going to be blown away by this application. You're going to go, really? But I think it's true. And so here's that main point again. Follow the biblical Jesus by faith. What do I mean by the biblical Jesus? It is not a Jesus of your own imagination. I say this with all due respect and all love. Many, many, many of you have been brought up on the psychologized Jesus that is in uh, many Bible studies. That it, it, the, the statements I wish I didn't get, but the statements I hear often. When I read such and such author, I feel so good. I want us, and even myself, to get to a point saying, when I read such and such author, they really make God look good because they show me what these verses mean. Do you see the subtle difference? It's all over. Just go do a quick review on the top Bible studies for both men and women, and it's this is what makes me feel good. That's not true. We need to get to a point where we say, when I read such and such an author, really, we'll get to my point here, we need to see the, because he points me to the Bible. She points me to the Bible. She points me to the Bible in a way that's, it, it's understandable and it's in context and it's not built off the third meaning of a word. Follow the biblical Jesus. How do you do that? Well, let me give you my three applications. This is huge. You guys are going to go, really? You went through all that for this. Read the Bible. It's, it's, uh, Pretty simple. When I mean, I don't just read, read John. 
Start in Genesis and go all the way through Revelation. And when you get to Psalms, we're reading through it as a men's study. We're, we're in the Psalms. And I'm, not, I'm telling you, in the first seven Psalms, if you read those closely, God's shattering teeth. He's breaking arms. He abhors those who... It's one, in, chapter, in Psalm 7, he abhors some people. He... He, he what? Yeah, that's what it says in there. He, he's got indignation all day. We've missed who God is. And I'm not saying he's just this. Here's what I'm trying to say is we've missed him. We've made him out to be this cuddly, approachable. Um, unholy God. It's what we've been taught. And that's, honestly, that's the one reason I preach. There are people going to hell because they've been taught wrong about God. That is my goal in life is to say, let me give you an accurate picture of God so that you don't make a mistake in who you're following. Read the Bible. You're going to get a God that you can't control. You're going to get a God who's bigger than you are. You're going to get a God that you don't want to see. Not because he'll zap you, because you're falling in love with the most beautiful being in the entire universe. Some of you are here today, and you need to read the Bible and then believe what you read. You, you need to believe what you read, that God is holy and just, and you cannot play games with him. Some, there are some of you in here today who just play games with God. And it, you don't call, you wouldn't call it idolatry, but I hope you do from now on. You you rub the Bible in three different ways, hoping that if I do this, then God will. No, God is not about. He's not a not that place at the supermarket where you put the quarter in and you just wait. That's not how He operates. And so some of you don't need to play games with God. If you're sinning, stop it. By the God's grace and for His glory, repent. But then there's some of you here today. God love you. I hope you get this, that he is a God full of lavish grace, and he is not. Don't run from him. Don't run from him. He is absolutely holy and just, and he will judge sin. But run to him. Run to him. He knows, he, he created you. He knows you. He has your life figured out. He has your finances figured out. He has your marriage figured out. He has your kids figured out. He has your job figured out. He knows you. He knows your desires. He knows that some of you like to ski. Some of you like to golf. Some of you are into cars and motorcycles. Some of you are into whatever it is you're in. He knows that. You don't need to create him. And just go to him and say, God, teach me from your word. And I'm going to believe it. If, it, if I read it in here, I'm not going to say, well, that can't mean what it really, that doesn't mean what it really says. He's predestined me. That, that, well, that doesn't mean... No, it, it means it. He's in control. <laughs> it means what it means. Just take it for what it's worth. And do what David did in Psalm 8. When I look at the heavens, the moon and the stars that you created, what is man? It's unbelievable, God, that you, who are so brilliant, so magnificent, so powerful, would even think to, to make me. So really, we only fall into two camps today when it comes to believing what you read. You either believe that there's this, this God who's all God, and he's, he's all those attributes together at once in a perfect, holy, just way, or you believe him's just, he's just one piece, and that's what I tried to show you. That's idolatry. Don't do that. And then the key, simple key is live it out. And so if you're here today and you're struggling and you, you go, I just really can't get this whole Bible thing, and you're struggling, maybe it's because you have a misunderstanding of who God is. Run to God. Read it. Read the Bible. Get somebody who knows the Lord and say, man, I have, I have built God up to be a distant policeman, and he doesn't like me. That's just not true. If you're here today and you're a believer and you just, you've made God to be just one aspect, get to know the God of the Bible. He's He's really big. He's really great. And don't make images of God.
not materially and definitely not mentally. God has given us his images. He, he gave us the tabernacle. He gave us the temple. He gave us his son. He gave us other, Im, other humans made in his image. And he's given us one more. It's communion. Did you know that? It's an image. Jesus said, he held up a piece of bread and he said, this is my body. See, it's a biblical image. We're not, and he gave, he gave you the, which is broken for you. He said, for this is the piece of it. So I'd encourage you now as we go into communion, would you think about your relationship with God? Are you relating to God as who he is or who you want him to be? Because we don't want to have any graven mistakes. Amen? Father, I pray for my own heart that I wouldn't make you into an image that you're not. Lord, there are some of us who've been in the church so long that we, we see you as a God of grace and we forget you're a God of justice and holiness. And you will judge us, not salvifically, but you don't like it when we sin. You don't like you don't like it when we keep our sins to ourselves. You said there's mercy when we confess our sins. So I pray for myself and those like me that we would confess our sins, that we've made an image of you that is not right. And Father, I pray for those in here who may just they may just have a an unclear picture of who you are. They may not know who you really are. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of their heart today that someone who doesn't know who you at all for who you really are would know the hope of their calling, would know the riches of the inheritance that is to come, and would know the surpassing greatness of your power to those of us who believe. I pray these things in Jesus' name.